Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 12th, 2016. On today's show, we'll discuss the first week of the NFL season and whether the pro football product is getting worse. We'll also talk to John Cusco, who's in Rio de Janeiro competing for the American goalball team. What is goalball? Where is goalball? Why is goalball? We will answer all of these questions and more. And finally, a special moment in Hang Up and Listen history. As Annie Beatty, a.k.a. Mrs. Zelmo Beatty, joins us to talk about her husband's induction in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And with us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. Hello, friends. And we're still looking for an intern for the fall. Email us at hangupatslate.com. We'd like you to be in D.C. and able to do some research. Hang up at Slate.com. Hey, Whimsy Watch, is it back? Ooh. 
Ooh, is it I hadn't thought about it. I'm, I'm trying to scan my brain for that which was whimsical. Did you find some whimsy, Josh? I always plan my whimsy very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill's linebackers, Jerry Hughes and Zach Brown, missed the team bus and took an Uber. Yeah. Is that whimsy, Mike? Yeah, that's whimsy. If they had taken the Uber out onto the field, like through the tunnel, that would have been awesome. If they had taken Uber pool and some, <laughs> some like uh, Bills backers who are trying to get to the stadium yeah. to pregame, yeah, that would be great. Some drunken Bills fans. Mm-hmm. That is actually a good sponsorship opportunity for Uber, like to do an Uber p- pool for players to the game. Yeah. That would be uh, a free idea, Uber. Free idea. Okay, other whimsy number two out of two is – the Vikings doing the pregame chant where Chad Greenway led it, and the chant was "Spoons out for Harambe." <laughs> spoons out. Okay, that's fine. Uh, and they, they come up with spoons as the uh, as the that, main word. My friend is why it's whimsy. Okay. All right, that's our whimsy watch for this week. You you can be back in the swing next week, Mike. You'll right. be you'll be on the lookout for whimsy. Now that I know to look for whimsy, yeah. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will talk about a non-Zelmo inductee into the Hall of Fame, Alan Iverson, likely the first Hall of Famer in any sport to thank Jadakiss in his acceptance speech. And Slate Plus, it's a good time. It's the great time. It's the best time ever to sign up for Slate Plus. For Slate's 20th anniversary for a limited time, we are offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus. And you can still get the free trial if you sign up. So go to slate.com slash hangup plus. You'll get bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. If you haven't joined yet, please do it now. Slate.com slash hangup plus. Last week on the website, The Ringer, there was a fascinating piece by Kevin Clark with the headline and subhead, the NFL has an age problem and you're seeing the effects on the field. The players are younger than ever. The football is worse than ever. And the causes aren't going away. I would encourage you to read the whole piece because it is really smart and interesting. The players are getting younger. It's undeniable. Uh, It's gone from 27.2 average age in 2006 to 26.6 in 2015. And there are a bunch of other numbers, you know, Offensive linemen are younger than ever. Quarterbacks are younger than ever. The Wall Street Journal did a piece uh, either last year or earlier this year where um, they described, again, an undeniable shortening of career lengths. And this has to do a lot, I think, Stefan, with the collective bargaining agreement that uh, went in place in 2011 that made it extremely, extremely worthwhile to teams to have younger players and rookies because of the way the contracts are structured. Right. They reduce the gigantic initial payments to rookies, um, which incentivized NFL teams to stock up on young players and keep them for four years, in some cases, five years when they have a club option for the fifth year. And the the effect of that appears to be that you load up on young players on their first contract and you pay out to veteran players on their uh, second or third contracts in some cases, but you really pay out. You save the money to pay a few top-tier players. And as we've seen in labor issues in other sports, the middle gets squeezed. And so teams find themselves jettisoning players that need more attention, more development, 
and they just don't want to pay the amount that you have to pay for a second contract. So you substitute younger players for the guys that would be getting the much bigger second contract who still need some development to become viable every Sunday NFL players. Okay, so that is all true. I agree with all that. But as Bill Barnwell and other people have pointed out on Twitter and other places where people write things, there's no way for anyone to say that the quality of play has gone down. At least I can't think of one. And fans, so, fans, fans. I mean, coaches can true. and GMs can. Okay, so I don't, I don't even agree with that. So there are coaches that are quoted in the Ringer piece and in other places who've said guys come in and they don't know what they're doing. The spread um, offense has made it impossible for players to learn technique in college. Right. So – do we believe – I mean, Mike, maybe you can feel this one. Do do we believe that coaches are correct? Because you kind of sound like a grumpy old man if you say like yeah. linemen can't block the way they used to. Um, do we, Should we believe them when they tell us these things? Well, on the one hand, smart places like the ringer can assert that or quote people who say that. Yet, on the other hand, and 12, 14, 25 times during the course of the year – There'll be a story about how 10 years ago, the NFL seemed to be in the Stone Age. I was just reading an interview with Pac-Man Jones, and it might not have been in the ringer. It was a Q&A. Maybe it was in, in ESPN. And he was talking about how in 2005, the offenses were so vanilla and compared to today, and, and Peyton Manning changed the game, and now audibling at the line of scrimmage. This is all smarter football, right? Then the Wildcat comes in, which seems like innovative, but defenses adjust to it. I was reading in the ringer a long story about how Chip Kelly was this innovator. Then defenses adjust. So if you have innovation and adjustment and innovation and adjustment, and this is the cycle, how do you say the football is getting worse? All of those things I'm saying are synonyms for, I don't know, the football or the quality of football. That might be a stand-in for some ideal that I don't understand, but it, it's it's demonstrably true that there are all these innovative new techniques that take hold and then get counteracted. And that means the, whatever you call it, the innovation, the smarts, the techniques part of it is there's an arms race and it is getting better. And let's also not forget that the modern athlete is better than at any time in the history of human civilization. Um, players coming into the NFL are better human athletes, civilization. period. <laughs> and so what the, the I think, Incans, the Maya. Well, the yes. Incans, though, really understood the three-point stance. So let's mm -hmm. not forget that. So what does all the, the whining from NFL coaches and management really mean? It means, hey, let's lock up players even longer on their rookie contracts so that they can get to the point five or six or seven years into their careers that they finally have the technique and ability that they just weren't taught when they were getting paid nothing uh, to go to college. And the implication with a lot of the criticism, it's so NFL inside the bubble, Mike. It's, you know, we need to mold them. We need to shape them. We need to control them. Um, and sure, you need muscle memory. Repetitive acts are important. You do learn a lot from 
actually hitting in practice and learning technique from doing that. On the other hand, this isn't neurosurgery. You know, you you can learn well, to become a better to. Off, though it might lead to neurosurgery. Yeah. You you know, you can become a good offensive lineman even if you played defensive line in college or you played in a spread offense in college in one, two, or three years. Um, so th- there is a sort of, there's something really offensive about the NFL arguing that we need more control and we need more hitting at a time when can, we've already cut early contracts down, players are inevitably going to get injured, and they're not making any money in college anyway. Well, I would just say, I think there is something truly insidious going on, and that you can talk about technique all you want, but this is just an acknowledgement that so much of the NFL's cannon fodder, and you have guys who are going to be hurt, so why spend that money on if, if whatever percentage of your team, 20% is going to be lost to injury, just from a financial standpoint, get cheaper guys to be that cannon fodder. And I absolutely think that's going on. And I also think there's a tension between technique and athleticism. And the NFL seems to be uh, more based on athleticism than the other leagues I could think of. Like uh, baseball being smart and having to, I mean, that's the one sport where athleticism doesn't get you far at all. And what you really need is smarts. But even in the NBA, like the veteran savvy, I think it has to do with holding the ball and, uh, you know, quarterbacks are getting older. So if you control the ball, that's about savvy. And there's definitely a savvy element to certain positions, you know, D- Daryl Revis is extremely smart and linebackers have to know things, but I'm not saying an offensive lineman or some edge rusher doesn't have a little bit of technique, but it's mostly athleticism. It's a lot of and- technique, Mike. I mean, it really is a lot of technique, but that doesn't mean that the technique is unteachable or unlearnable. And if, and if front offices are deciding, but what I'm saying is the technique wanna- from year three to year 15 right. or year nine in the NBA is really palpable and in the NFL I just don't you tell me if I'm being ignorant I don't think it's quite to the level of the NBA and I know it's not to the level of I don't know I I think I might say that it is to that level but if NFL front offices are deciding as in in the ringer piece um, the, the Green Bay Packers decided not to pay a 29-year-old all-pro offensive lineman named Josh, Josh Sitton. Well, that's on the front office. You make decisions about who you're going to pay and how much you're going to pay them. And if you're choosing to have a an offensive line that's under the age of 26, you are going to – there are going to be consequences for that. Back to me. Hmm. So here's what I think. The way that you could tell if – the quality of play has gone down that the fan can tell is if a quarterback is not good. That I think is the only thing that parses to a fan as this game sucks and is not fun to watch. Like, and I can say that having watched LSU play the first two games of the season. So, you know, in the first week I I claimed in our intro, we were going to talk about week one. Well, here I go briefly, like Dak Prescott for the Cowboys and Carson Wentz for the Eagles. They both look pretty good. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And there is this notion out there that quarterback has become Harder and harder and harder to play, which I think is probably true. And part and of that, that part of that truth is because front offices have made it harder and harder to play, and coaching staffs have made it harder and harder to play. And that you have guys who are coming in, you know, they've thrown a lot in college, but the systems are different. And you know, we've seen that some years the quarterback classes that come in are much better, much worse. Than the others, Jared Goff seems to be having, you know, a little bit of a harder time adjusting than some of his quarterback peers. But again, as Bill Barnwell said, I don't think there's any way that we can tell 
that quarterbacks now are better or worse as a group on aggregate than they were 10 or 15 years ago. There are just so many confounding variables. There's so many things that have changed. You can't compare the game. And so, again, I just think this idea that the game is somehow getting worse, that the product is getting worse, it's just probably not true. And if it was true, we just wouldn't have any way to figure it out. The other reaction that I had to the Ringer piece was that these coaches, Mike McCarthy was quoted, Marvin Lewis, Doug Whaley, the GM of the Bills, the sentiment that kind of was common to all of them was that the college game, it's like this evolutionary thing where they're on they're on like separate islands. And so you've got like, you know, finches with different shaped beaks and maybe they like can't, you know, go together anymore just because the, there's no, sh- you know, in, in college, it's just all spread and you come into the NFL and it's like a totally different game. Let's just assume that all of that is 100% true. I read that like, you guys are such huge assholes. Just start your own minor league. Either start your own minor league and pay <laughs> and pay the players and teach them how you want them to play or just shut the fuck up and don't complain about it. You're getting this unpaid labor force and you're complaining that they don't play the exact way you want, them, want to play? them to play. Oh my God. It's- well, or how about, how about something in between? How about expanding the rosters? How about taking some of that television money and increasing the salary cap and expanding the rosters? They're, they're 53 now. What's to say that a 63-man roster is so bad? Wouldn't that protect the health of existing players? Wouldn't it allow you to have a pool of players that could practice against each other, whether they're hitting or not, and develop technique more quickly? Wouldn't it allow you to hire two or three more coaches on an already bloated coaching staff to work with younger players to help train them in the way that you want to train them? That seems like a a reasonable solution. But – The point I would make here is like we talked about this with the NBA, the cap increase and the way that that manifested and who was signed and for how much that, you know, we often don't appreciate how the collective bargaining agreement in a particular sport or league totally shapes the way that that, you know, the rosters are constructed. And it's, you know, guys don't make rosters on merit just because because they're the better player, as Mike said. If a guy is slightly worse than somebody else, but, you know, 10 times cheaper, you're obviously going to go for the cheaper guy, especially because of how often they get injured. Yeah. I mean, even though it's a uh, 53 man roster, you know, good percentage of that, I don't know, let's say 15 players will play some special teams or will be depth at linebacker, but they're just seen as interchangeable and you just all you want them to be is bodies who uh, won't horribly embarrass you should the first two guys get hurt. Let me also uh, throw out a couple other things. There was a Washington Post piece last year that argued that that football has never been worse. The NFL has never been worse. And it pointed to parity and uh, the number of teams below 500 and some late season matchups that were terrible. Also a bunch of quarterback injuries last year. Yeah. And – you know, again, I don't think that proved that the NFL is worse. I mean, it proved that there were some teams that were doing very, very well, and that means they're going to win more games at the expense of other teams. So you're going to have more teams that are around 500 or with severely losing records. Um, but let's look at the first weekend of games. There were four one-point games on Sunday. I mean, that's 
pretty good. I guess the NFL is great again. They were close. They were exciting. Quality of play looked pretty good. Um, so, so I'm not sure that the, the, the parody argument has a lot of weight here. And the second point is if you have more players leaving the NFL earlier, which I think you're going to see accelerate in the years to come to protect their health. Could we not say that a quote unquote worse league might be a better league, better for the collective long-term health of the young men who choose to play football professionally? Should we be willing to sacrifice a little bit of technique on the swim motion by a defensive lineman in exchange for the players getting out of the NFL a year or two or three years earlier than they might have? Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Sunday, the United States men's goalball team improved its record to 2-1 and one in group play at the 2016 Paralympics in Rio de Janeiro, beating Finland 6-2. Goalball is a game for visually impaired athletes, and it's been a Paralympic sport since 1976. It was invented by an Austrian and a German in 1946 as a way to rehab soldiers who'd lost their vision in World War II. So three-on-three game, and everyone wears blindfolds to make sure everyone is on an even playing field. Defensive players are arrayed on the ground in front of a net, while the offensive player who's throwing the ball uses a technique that looks to me like a cross between bowling and throwing the discus. The aim is to get the ball into the net. The ball makes noise so you can track its movements. And as a consequence, the crowd has to stay silent so the players can hear it. Joining us now is one of the United States' goalball stars, John Cusco, who scored the go-ahead goal against Finland. John is from Commerce Township, Michigan. And when he's not playing goalball, he is a high school math and physics teacher. Welcome, John. Thank you. Did I get anything wrong? No, it sounded wonderful. I've heard all of those things about my sport. (laughs) (laughs) It seems accurate. So one question that I have about goalball before we get into the really nitty-gritty is it seems like they didn't really try that hard to name the sport. It's basically like like ball ball or like – how do you feel about the name goalball? I think the name is what it is because the court is 30 feet wide by 60 feet long. So it's the same as a volleyball court. And the goal is the entire 30 feet width of the court. So when you're looking at a goal ball court, you see the goals pretty prominently. So I'm guessing that's why the name. Part of the marketing could be our goals are bigger than in any yeah, other sport. Absolutely. How tall are the goals? Uh, they're about four feet tall. And are there, tell us what the rules are in terms of the ball getting off the ground and, and just sort of what the, the technique and what the rules allow. So we start with the ball with our back as far back against that as possible because the ball has to hit the ground before the six-meter line. And how heavy is this ball? uh, Three pounds. And then it has to hit the ground again before the other team's six-meter line. So it's got to hit the the ground at least twice, once before it leaves your part of the court and then once in the neutral zone. 
Um, and if it doesn't, then you have a penalty shot where you have to defend the entire court by yourself for one throw. Mm-hmm. So it's not like dodgeball. You can't just wing it and hope that you, you get right. it in. If yeah. anything, the sport's like anti-dodgeball. Uh, right. We are trying to get hit. We want to stop the ball from getting past us. What does a goal ball sound like? I mean, is it like a, you know, a, a cat's toy where it's got a little bell inside? I mean, what yeah, what does it sound like? Yeah. <laughs> so the ball is actually, um, it's not inflated rubber. It's a firm rubber that's hollow in the middle. It's the exact same size as a basketball, and it has some sleigh bells inside. So if you, if you were just to pick it up, at the motion of you picking it up and kind of walking around with it, it does kind of sound like a cat toy. Mm-hmm. It's jingling, right? Once, once you throw it, though, because we put spin on the ball, because the ball's shooting down the court close to 45 miles an hour, the bells aren't making noise at that time. At that time, you're hearing the ball hit the floor. That's the sound that we're hearing. So, you know, if, if you're, someone's throwing a ball that's intended to bounce, you hear flop, flop. And if, if someone's throwing a ball that's smooth, you know, right along the ground, kind of like a bowling shot, you'll hear down the court or maybe like... So you're, you, sometimes you're hearing the bell when someone is handling a ball, but when the ball's coming at you 40 miles an hour, you're, you're just hearing rubber on Terraflex. Terraflex is the uh, material on the court. You have to time the thwops to try to bat the ball out of the air? Um, Absolutely. You, you want to put yourself in a position where you're in front of the ball, and you're kind of drawing a mental line to connect the first flop with the second flop, and then you're listening for the timing so that you are attacking the ball in the air. Try not to let it get under you, but not let it get over you as well. So I've been watching some video, and there is a twirling, almost shot put-like motion that's common among some teams. The Chinese seem to favor it. Why? What is the advantage of this? And it can't just be that it looks cool because all the (laughs) participants are wearing blindfolds. (laughs) When you throw the ball uh, with a straight throw, you don't seem to quite get as much momentum on it as when you spin. Um, also, the spinning motion helps us to flip the ball with our wrist, which gives it a lot of top spin, so that when it hits right. a player, if it's bouncing and it hits you up high, it kind of grips you and rolls right over you. Right. So there's kind of two reasons to spin when we throw. It seems like most of the goals do come off a player in that manner. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and one reason for that seems to be that you really can, depending on the height of the players, you can cover the bulk, obviously, of the 30 feet. Not yeah, all I mean, of it, obviously, unless you have three 10-foot tall players. Right, yeah. We, we are very mathematical about the way we do it, the way we shift toward the ball to cut off the angle. You know, you don't need to cover part of the court if the ball is coming from a sideline because it's not possible mm-hmm. to hit that part of the court. If, if the ball crosses that area, it's going out of bounds. So we shift toward the ball to, so that it literally, if the three of us just lay down, and don't move at all, it's going to hit one of us. Mm-hmm. And so the, the skill is to be able to predict where the ball's coming from, get in front of it with a big part of your body so you can stop a ball that's up in the air. So I saw in an interview that your wife said that you just think about goal ball all the time. Your wife's <laughs> a coach too, right? <laughs> yeah, she coaches our Michigan team. And you dream about it. So what are you thinking about? What are the kind of strategies? What are the different, you know, are you, are you thinking through what's going to happen in the next game? So the things that I think about are my individual play. So positioning, where do I start? And then attacking the ball. How, how, where is my arm going to be if the ball does this? Where is my leg going to be if the ball does this? Am I going to push back or am I going to attack forward? I just mentally rehearse all the possible scenarios, mostly defensively because that is uh, our team's philosophy. That's the important part. And then uh, as far as throwing the ball, I just think about ways to make sure I don't get a penalty. 
and, uh, you know, shots that I think would be logical. You know, if they think I'm on the left side, if I scoot over to the right side and throw down the line, there might not be a player there. So that might be a good shot to make. So, so are you allowed to run? Are you essentially allowed to run along the width of the court, sort of like on an inbounds pass in basketball to, to, to confuse the, the other team? The rule is once someone on our team begins his approach to make his throw, we have to be silent. So before any player starts, before the player with the ball makes his approach, we can do whatever we want. And there is a lot of, um, you know, subtle motion that we do to try to get them to read it in a different place. You know, we're, we're moving a lot every play. So it's, they're going to hear somebody moving. They don't know if he's got the ball or not. So uh, we definitely do that. <laughs> is there been a coaching or strategic uh, revolution or change in the sport since you've been playing? Innovations, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I feel as though we are probably the most innovative team. We're doing things that no other teams do. You know, all six of our players can play all three positions. Nobody else really does that. Uh, We also, depending on where the ball is at on the court at the other end, uh, the center is laying either on his right hip to defend or on his left hip to defend to put us in the best place possible. And all the other centers in the sport always lay on their same hip and just move their body toward the ball. So there's a lot of stuff that we're doing that nobody else is, and it seems to be helping us. It's like a Johan Cruyff uh, total goal ball, <laughs> everyone playing every position sort of deal. Yeah, absolutely. A beautiful goal ball. You guys, it seems like since... You missed out on the 2012 Paralympics. You didn't qualify. It yep. seems like there's been more dedication. Um, you were at the training center in Fort Wayne, Indiana, right? Like with the team practicing every day. Yeah, you got it. Uh, you know, some of our guys moved down there in October of 2015. I was not able to do that because uh, I'm a teacher. So I would go down on weekends and like during my spring break. And then once the school year ended, I spent uh, most of the summer training every day. And how does it work financially for you guys? Yeah, it's pretty rough. Um, (laughs) I am right now missing school, so I had to take an unpaid leave of absence. uh, So I'm missing out on a paycheck, uh, one and a half paychecks to come down. And my students will start with me a little bit late this year. And uh, John, you you were not born with uh, sight deficiency, right? You had a hereditary degenerative disease. Yeah, Uh, you're right. I do have hereditary degenerative disease, but um, it had already advanced quite a bit in my very young age. So from the time that I was born, I was probably already uh, with less than 20 degrees of mm -hmm. vision. I have uh, tunnel vision and it has been degenerating since. So when I was, when I was young, I had a restricted field. um, But as I got older, it got smaller and smaller to the point where when I was in middle school, competing with my able-bodied peers was not very fun (laughs) anymore. So that's kind of when I really was looking for something to do. And uh, I found goalball. How'd you find it? Uh, In Michigan, we had um, some local tournaments in the Detroit area. And then also the big thing was the uh, Michigan sports education camp started by Paul and Sue Poncella. um, And they were hosting that at Western Michigan University. And so since 96, I started going to that. It's like a week-long camp, learn about uh, goalball and other adapting other sports so that people with visual impairments can compete. And it it was amazing for me as a youngster. And then when I uh, went to school at Western, I started helping at the camp to pay it forward and teach the younger kids about my sport. And now I'm playing with a couple of them. I'm on my Michigan team. I have two kids that I introduced to the sport and really brought into it. Now, I know in some Paralympic events, there are different um, levels uh, for different people who have different levels of ability, um, you mm-hmm. know, swimming, yeah, classifications. In, in, in classifications. And, you know, in 
And there can be a lot of gamesmanship or chicanery to try to, you know, go up or down. But it seems that gold ball, since no matter what your level of uh, visual impairment is, you have to wear a blindfold. It's really even. But are there some subtleties? Can the more, um, and correct me if I'm using the wrong or an offensive phrase, can the more ably sighted people in some way get an advantage or have an advantage in the sport or even a disadvantage? Our assistant coach, Matt Boyle, he, you know, looks at all the other teams and he says, you know, the best players in the world all had sight as a youngster and now have very limited sight. Mm-hmm. So it's someone with a degenerative disease or someone who had an accident are, are the best players because they, they could see the mechanics of sports as a youngster, but now they're living their life and doing their daily things not relying on vision, which allows them to be more successful on the court. So, Why do you think that you is? Know. Is it is it a question of just having that visual representation I think so. of sight when you were young? Mm-hmm. Understanding the geometry. You know, it's a, it's a really hard thing for someone who is uh, congenitively blind, always blind, never had vision. Geometry is a hard thing. It's, you know, the only way they get geometry is if someone hands them an object and they can feel what it looks like. And uh, as someone who is born with enough sight to use it, you know, the, the geometry of sport makes a lot more sense to me. Um, and I can understand when my coach says to do certain things with my body, I can just do it. So how have the Paralympics been more broadly? You know, there was a lot of talk, I think we heard during the Olympics, like we're not going to have any money to do this. Like people aren't going to go. What has your experience been? I don't know what it was like to be here during the Olympics, so I can't do any comparison. Um, but what I can speak to is, you know, I read an article that said that they were going to make sure that the experience for the athletes on the court it was not diminished in any way. And I, I can't imagine the experience on the court being any more amazing. Uh, I mean, I think there were 10,000 people watching our game last night. So wow. it's just been phenomenal. The crowds are incredible. And, uh, you know, the transportation has, has been flawless getting to and fro. So, you know, the, the direct experience of competing here and living here, I don't think really has been impacted at all. It's been wonderful. So who are the coolest Paralympians? Like, what is the hierarchy in the village? Like, who do you really want to meet? Who is, like, the most popular? Uh, you know, like, for me, I watched, I don't know, probably somewhere around 80 hours of Olympics when I was still uh, in Fort Wayne training. And, you know, I, I saw a commercial for Citibank with Brad Snyder, a swimmer for the USA. And, like, so I met him the first day we got down here. And I, I thought that was the coolest moment for me, just meeting him. Like, I just saw you on a commercial, and you're going to go out and, like, destroy it. And he's already got a gold medal. So it's pretty sweet. And are people coming up to you and saying, you know, hey, man, aren't you on the gold ball team? <laughs> so far, not so much in the village. Uh, you know, tomorrow we have a day off. We're going to go walk around the Olympic Park, uh, check out a couple other sports. And so, you know, maybe while we're walking around, some of the spectators will come up and, and start getting us. <laughs> Speaking of the spectators, uh, the Brazilian fans have been notoriously insane at the, at the Olympics <laughs> and at other events. Goalball, though, requires like full on silence. Have they been well, respectful, those 10,000 people in the arena? You could say, you could say requires, but uh, it's not getting full on silence. So, you know, they're, they're trying to, to keep them quiet. And, and before our Finland game, they had an MC who was, you know, explaining that they needed to be quiet. And then they actually practiced doing a silent wave around the crowd. So instead of, you know, cheering as it came to your section, you said, shh. 
So the wave kind of went around with a shush. And so when it was time for the crowd to be silent, a lot of people jumped in with that shush right away. So I think that they kind of embraced the excitement of being quiet in our venue. And uh, when they get the opportunity to cheer, it is extremely loud and very exciting. Embrace the silence. Goal ball yeah. coming at you. <laughs> Depeche mode. Enjoy the yeah. silence. Goal, goal ball. So what is left for you guys in the Paralympics? How many more games do you have? When should we be sure. tuning in? And, and what can we expect? So uh, last night with our win against Finland, we guarantee that we are in the quarterfinals. All right. So, uh, we play Turkey tonight, and that game is for placement. So how high can we get to, to play a weaker team in the quarterfinals? Right now we are ranked number two. Um, and if we beat Turkey, um, we're going to be at least number two uh, with a possibility of being number one. Uh, tomorrow's off, and then on Wednesday is the quarterfinals. So uh, the games range from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. in this one hour ahead of Eastern time, uh, time zone that we find ourselves in. Um, so sometime on Wednesday we'll play a game, and then uh, if we lose, we're done. And if we win, we will play on Thursday and Friday in the semifinals and finals. Awesome. Um, I actually have one other question that, that occurs to me. The adjective that I feel like is most often associated with Paralympians is inspirational. <laughs> How do you feel about that? I mean, we, we talk about it a lot amongst ourselves. And, you know, there, our first maybe gut instinct is just be like, oh, God, gross. <laughs> but, you know, like, who am I to say what inspires somebody else? I watched the Olympics and I watched a road cyclist cross the finish line with a bloody nose and say, you know, did I win? And she's 42 year old, her six year old comes up to her and said, why are you crying? You won. Like that's inspirational to me. So, uh, you know, to, to, to each his own, if, if what I do is inspirational, then that's wonderful. I'm glad that I can, you know, fill someone with that feeling. I, I hope your pre-calculus students feel the same way about your, <laughs> your teaching abilities that it's inspirational, John. John Cusco plays for the American goalball team. They're at the Paralympics in Rio. John, thanks so much and best of luck. You're welcome and thank you. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. On Friday in Springfield, Massachusetts, Allen Iverson, Shaquille O'Neal, and Yao Ming, among others, were enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Among others. Come on, let's list them all. They're Jerry Reinsdorf, Cumberland Posey, Daryl Gerritsen, Tom Izzo, John McClendon, Cheryl Swoops, and elected to the Hall of Fame posthumously, the great Zelmo Beatty. The Hall of Fame's website has the following short biography. Zelmo Big Z Beatty was a powerful force for Prairie View A&M, averaging 25 points and 20 rebounds per game from 1958 to 1962. He led them to the NAIA championship while earning the Chuck Taylor MVP award. As a pro, he was a standout for the St. Louis Hawks and the ABA Utah Stars as an undersized center with a strong inside game and fierce rebounding ability. As a two-time NBA All-Star and a three-time ABA All-Star, he averaged a double-double in scoring and rebounding for his career. He won an ABA championship in 1971 with the Stars, and he was awarded the ABA Playoffs Most Valuable Player Award. 
Beatty was named to the ABA all-time team and inducted into the National Collegiate Basketball Hall of Fame in 2014. Joining us now is the woman who presented Zelmo Beatty at Friday's enshrinement ceremony, his widow, Annie Beatty. Welcome to the show, Annie. Thank you. Good to be here. It's a very special treat to have you here. And for people who are listening who don't know, and for Annie, who I don't think knows, Zelmo Beatty has a special place on this podcast. So in 2011, we had uh, Zaid Abdul Aziz, a basketball player who was a college star and NBA player on the show. And he said that players today don't remember the legends from the past. And the example that he cited was that Shaquille O'Neal was on the David Letterman show and David Letterman asked, what do you think of Zelmo Beatty? And Shaq was like, who is that? And Zaid Abdul Aziz was like, he said, everybody should know, like especially NBA players should know who Zelmo Beatty is. And so for the last five years, Annie, we've remembered Zelmo Beatty at the end of every podcast. I say remember Zelmo Beatty. And so it's a special treat to have you here. Yes, we've known that you you would do that on the show. So uh, I was supposed to tell you, we knew you were saying it. So thanks for saying it. And we also saw the Letterman show. Oh, you did. So what did you what did you think about that? Uh, We weren't surprised because um, Shaq didn't grow up in America. And uh, basically, you know, he grew up here, sort of. And he He was on a military base in Germany. Correct. And he wasn't really um, probably a basketball fan as a young person. So uh, the only names he knew were the prominent uh, NBA names. He he just didn't know the other players, so that that didn't surprise us. We all laughed. Thelma was with us. We all had a good time with that one. <laughs> and what was it like for you at the ceremony over the weekend? Was Zelmo appropriately remembered? Did ever did everyone give him the respect that he deserves? Uh, yes, we we appreciated being there. We were very thankful to the. Hall of Fame for um, having him in. It took a long time, but that's the way some of these things occur. We're so sorry he couldn't have been there. So just four years earlier, he would have really enjoyed it. The one thing that threw me a little bit when we received the rings, the MC that was in charge of that, the question he asked me, because I was first, of course, and the question he asked me was so um, odd. He asked me, um, uh, I hear that your husband fouled out. He mentioned so many times in a year and uh, that he was a very dirty player. <laughs> then he went into this thing. <laughs> he went, I, I, of course, I'm stunned because I haven't been prepped on what question's coming. So I don't really give a good answer. I just he said he taught school and I led into that and said he loved the children and the <laughs> children loved him, you know, after he retired. But after that I didn't know what else to say, so I said, Well, you could ask uh Dan Insel or August Gilmore because they were on the stage about him and I shut up. <laughs> it was but otherwise everything else was fine. The questions were okay. And then on Friday, when I was first to go up, I couldn't, I almost started to cry. So I 
shut up and sat down. But otherwise, it was fine. Everything was wonderful. Zelma was drafted in 1962. Um, I don't know when you, you got married. Was it shortly after that, or, or were you already married? Yeah, it was probably about six months later in 63. And in the NBA in those days, he was drafted by the St. Louis Hawks, where you stayed for, I think, seven seasons. You didn't make much money in those days in the NBA. It was a very owner-dominated league. The league wasn't as popular, obviously, as it became in the, in the 80s and 90s. Um, what were those first few seasons like in terms of not only Zelmo's playing, because he was banging against Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell and holding his own, even though he was a, a smaller player, um, but in terms of sort of the, the, the evolution of, of the black athlete and his consciousness in, in the NBA and his role in the NBA? Uh, it, was, it was interesting at first, you know, coming from such a small town, you don't understand the financial part of it very much. But after, you know, a few months, you begin to see what's going on. And it was difficult for Zelmo and Lenny and the guys that were playing then to fight so hard. They had no representatives. So to fight for their salaries and uh, uh, that was, they'd go fight for the salary, come home, and then the wives would jump on them because you didn't ask for enough. So mm-hmm. it was an interesting time. Yeah, he made $15,000 the first season and never <laughs> made more than 30000 in the NBA, I think. Yeah, I think he made thirty five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or something like that. So that's the part that was difficult, and the younger guys will never, ever understand that part. Uh, he, Zelma was happy to live through it, so they can have what they have today. He was never uh, jealous or upset over what they received. Uh, he was happy they could receive it. Because once his sister said to him, oh, you just were born too soon. He said, no, it was okay. So uh, it was an interesting time, though, because uh, fighting with the general manager for the money was, you know, you begin to not like them. And it's not really their fault. They're just the messengers. Were there endorsements uh, that he did? Were there jobs in the off season <laughs> that he took? Oh, he did off-season work for Anheuser-Busch. Mm-hmm. That helped us to live through the summer. Because as young married, you know, and you're not accustomed to money, you don't have any when summer comes. You're just <laughs> trying to make it. So that was good. They had little what, what did he do? Like did he work that. in an office? Did he go out to bars and, like, shake no, people's hands? What was his to, job? He was to go to bars, give them yeah. free beer and shake hands. <laughs> That's what they did. <laughs> <laughs> so just reading articles about his playing career, one thing that comes up so many times is how much pain he was in and how many surgeries he had to have. What was that like at home? Was Did he have trouble getting up in the morning? Um, you know, what was he feeling when going through these long seasons, not on the first class flights or charter planes? Well, that part was difficult, especially for the taller players. Um, the, I'm trying to remember his first surgery, uh, the doctor explained to him that, see, a lot of those surgeries were experimental. It was all, you know, they just had to go with what they knew. 
And they would explain it up front because they had to do something to get him back on the floor. So he went, mm, I can't remember in St. Louis if it was two or three, but they were major, major cut-ups. And then he'd force himself and work hard and get back out there because it was so competitive. Uh, at the end of his career in um, Salt Lake, he was in more pain than I really knew at the time. That's when his roommate was saying he was just eating aspirin, you know, to cut down on the pain. So that didn't help. You know, that wasn't good for his system. I want to ask you about those Salt Lake years, uh, Annie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zelmo chose in 1969 to, to to take an offer from the new ABA, the American Basketball Association, uh, signed a four-year contract with the Los Angeles Stars, but he had to sit out a year. And as soon as you signed, or shortly thereafter, the owner of the team in Los Angeles, who was a cable TV guy, Bill Daniels, decided to move the team to Salt Lake City, which was almost entirely white. Um, And I, I wrote an obituary about Zelmo and in researching this, it really struck me just how much of a, a pioneer he was and how much of an activist he was. Um, he announced at the time that he wouldn't go to Salt Lake um, because of the tensions between black athletes and the Mormon church. Um, and then finally, you guys, I guess, visited. What, what was the process there? What, what happened? What do you remember from, from that time? I didn't know much about Salt Lake, and we'd never been, of course. But when they moved... They invited us in, and there's a picture that showed up at the uh, Hall of Fame of he and I, you know, when we were in our 20s. I was frightened to death the whole time we when we went. But once we got there, everybody was wonderful. They treated us well, uh, you know, and the team basically can shield the players from from the neighborhood in a sense. So we were treated well. They took care of us. And it seems like it mattered that Zelmo came out and said, hey, it's okay to come and play here. Yeah, yeah. Once we got in and we dealt with the press and the people in charge of the team, we did just fine. We didn't have, we didn't have any issues with it. The contract he signed with the Stars, mm-hmm. you know, to go to Utah, that worked out okay at first because the money was deferred. But then when the uh, league started to have trouble, he was on the, he had two different owners who were to pay his uh, deferred money. And of course, we had to sue to get that money. I was going to ask you about that because it was really kind of a remarkable thing, I think, for an athlete to do in 1973 before free agency. Zelmo's knees were going. He was approaching the, if not the end of his career, at least toward the end. Um, it was the end. It, it was, was the end. Yeah. And yeah, the team yeah. actually sued him and Zelmo countersued for over a million he dollars, had, right? He had to. He had to because it was money that was owed to him and he was finishing up his uh, career. And of course, you know, you're finishing up, you know, you don't have enough money to do that. So that was a hard time because we had to fight. We had to countersue in order to get money that he had already worked for. That's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was something that we had to suffer through for about two, two and a half years. Did it, did it color how he felt about professional basketball going forward? I, I read a story that Sports Illustrated wrote uh, in 1974 
in which Zelmo said, basketball's a rotten business. They figure once they've drained all that you're worth, they just dump you. Yeah, that probably... He, he later years, he probably wouldn't have been as bitter, but during that time, because he was in the middle of the fight and he's paying for attorneys, he's already paid for up front. It made him, of course, bitter because he's got two junior high kids and we're trying to survive and he's having to sue. He's having to use the resources that he's put aside uh, to live on in order to get money that he deserves. So, I don't know if players do that today. I think they eliminated that where you do this deferment. They probably have another way of doing it because the deferred system ended up stinking. It was not good. So I wanted to ask you about a couple of Zelmo's contemporaries and rivals. He played his first, I think, three years with the Hawks, overlapped with Bob Pettit, one of the greatest players of all time, and perhaps someone that maybe Shaq would remember, but there's a chance maybe he wouldn't have. What was Bob Pettit like? They both went like? to LSU, Mike. <laughs> oh, th- this is true. What was Bob Pettit like? What did Zelmo say Pettit was like as a, as a teammate, as a person, as a player? Pettit was very nice. He was very, uh, he was uh, the owner's pet, as you could say. And he was very good to the players. He's not very noisy, not very talkative, but he was a, he was a nice person to them and he could learn for Pettit, you know, in practice and the way he carried himself in those ways. So they all loved Bob because he was the key of the team. Oh yeah. And you know, these were Bob's, he got injured, but I think in his second to last season, he had like 28 points. He was a great player throughout his career, but what about playing against Wilt? That must've been the one. There were great centers, but Wilt was, I'm going to guess something that Zelmo had never experienced before. Correct. And he was Wilt. He just held held on to Wilt for uh, dear life when he was under the basket and pushed. And Al Adel, you know, who was on the team with Wilt, who was the guard, he would always beat up on Zelmo against Wilt. You know, he was Wilt's protector. That was kind of funny all the time. So they would have scrimmages, but it was Al who would always try to protect Wilt. And Wilt was a gentle uh, big man. He didn't um, he didn't push them around the way he could have. He just played and held the ball up above his head, and they fought to uh, uh, get it from him. And Zell always had to push hard to try to get in position. That's all he could do against <laughs> Will. And shoot, you know, bring him away from the basket and take shots. That was all he could do. <clears throat> yeah, Zelma was a guy who would kind of face the basket and and shoot from from fifteen feet. Like, what's your what's your scouting report on Zelma's game? What were his strengths? And we- <laughs> what were his strengths and weaknesses? Uh, the worst thing he had were, and they worked on it in St. Louis. He had short fingers, so his his fingers were short. So he would have a lot of trouble uh, handling the ball. Say versus somebody like Kareem who has very long fingers, you know, they can palm the ball. He couldn't really do that. But otherwise, he fought very hard. He was a good shooter. He could shoot the free throws and, uh, you know, he could get down the floor about as fast as he could as his height and size. And so he was a hard worker. That was yeah. the main thing. Very competitive. 
How did he feel about having the name Zelmo? Uh, it was interesting because when our son was born, we we took four days to name him. And he would go back and forth on what he should name his son. And finally, he chose another name. He said, I can't do it to him. I just can't. <laughs> so he named him Daryl. He named him something else. I'm sure this is um, a wonderful time. It was a great weekend. It was a deserving weekend. But if you were to summarize what your husband's legacy was, what would you say? Oh, boy. Well, he, uh, from his beginnings, you know, he came from a small town. They said 250, but it probably was 100, you know, at most. He came from very small beginnings. Uh, he worked very hard. He was very conscientious. And uh, we're proud of him for that. Uh, the basketball parts that have been forgotten and all that, we can't worry about that too much because we know what he did. And uh, he was a good guy. Uh, and that's about it. That's all I can say. Well, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I'm glad that you knew about Remember Zelmo Beatty. And we will always remember Zelmo Beatty on this show. We will continue to remember Zelmo Beatty. We will. Uh, we really appreciate it. We heard it and we knew <laughs> about it. And we thank you so much for doing it. We thank you, Annie Beatty. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for calling us. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Now it is time for After Balls and coming up for that delightful conversation. What did you, uh, you, you found something you wanted to to cite, Stefan? Uh, we pulled up a story from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch of March 23rd, 1965. Headline, Ann Beatty's Savvy Keeps Big Z Minding P's and Q's by John J. Archibald. Sometimes it is downright irritating for a pro basketball player to have a wife who knows so much about the sport. Take the Hawk Center's Elmo Beatty, for instance. Maybe he'll have a bad game once in a while. You know, one of those in which they always move the hoop just after he shoots, or one in which every rebound sails 10 feet over his head. You think his wife, Anne, would try to pretend she hadn't noticed? Before we even get in the car, said Beatty, Anne will ask, where's your copy of the box score? She was tough. Anne Beatty's box score? That's what we're doing? Yeah. All right, Mike, what is your Anne Beatty's box score? So after a week one of college football, which uh, is full of thrilling games and just great matchups that could have serious playoff implications, week two is when the big teams like to coast and the little teams like to get a paycheck by letting the big teams coast all over them. There are a few exceptions. We saw Central Michigan be awarded a play that it shouldn't have been awarded and beat Oklahoma State. By the way, if that was reversed, oh, the howls of indignation that Oklahoma State benefited. But by the way, let it be noted that the officiating crews from both teams' divisions screwed up that one. But what I'm most fascinated with 
in the uh, Patsy week two schedule of college football is that sometimes the teams are paired and they become people's names when you just hear it. I think the thing that first alerted me to this was one of the pairings this weekend. The Howard Bison were playing the Scarlet Knight of Rutgers and someone said to me, Rutger Howard. And I was like, what? Famous actor Rutger Howard? No, it was Rutger Howard. But a couple of these are actual people's names. There was Georgia Nichols, who I found out was not just a uh, non-lopsided matchup, actually. Georgia struggled. But uh, Georgia Nichols is a well-known psychic. This wasn't a week two matchup, but there is a Troy Duke. That was a 2013 Patsy against the big team matchup. Troy Duke is a somewhat well-known tattoo artist. Later in the season, there will be Charlotte Rice. Now, you would think teams like Charlotte and Mercer, they would give you, and, and Murray State would give you ample opportunity for games named after people. But all of those teams play against multi-directional state universities. So while I thought maybe there would be an Austin P. Mercer in existence, and there was in like the 1850 census, there really is no Austin P. Middle Tennessee. That name doesn't exist. But I did find, and this was the big one of, uh, so there is a Charlotte Rice. She was written up in a Dallas paper for marrying a man a few years older than her. Claim to fame. But the thing that really stuck out at me was Houston Lamar, or as I've heard it stated, Lamar Houston. Lamar Houston was not only a game this weekend, but Lamar Houston is an actual football player for the Chicago Bears and Lamar Houston or Lamar High School outside of Houston, which is sometimes written Lamar, parentheses, Houston, is a high school that's pretty good at football. Of course they are. They're in Texas. And to make matters worse, they're the Lamar Houston Texans. That is the nickname of that high school. So it's all very confusing and possibly the only thing getting me through these 42 to 3 scores, although that was Iowa versus Iowa State, not a Rutger-Hauer type situation. It seems like it'll be a lot of possibilities with Troy. Yeah, and you know what? Well. There is, there is yeah. a Jay Warren McClure School of Information and Telecommunication Systems at Ohio University. Yeah, so you got your Troy McClure. Troy McClure, oh, yeah. very good. Be a good one. Yeah, Stefan, what is your Ann Beatty's box score? New York Times columnist Nick Kristoff wrote about climate change over the weekend, how it not only affects, you know, oceans and cities and whatnot, but also bodies and minds. Students do worse on tests on hot days. Mortality rates rise on hot days. Worker productivity declines on hot days. Can you think of anything else, Mike? Yeah. Um, uh, presidential candidates uh, succumb to the effects of pneumonia on hot days, apparently. Um, reasonably hot days. Okay. And, and how about this? Pitchers are more likely to retaliate for a teammate getting hit by a pitch by throwing at an opposing hitter on hot days. That's right. A 2010 study led by hang-up listener and Duke Business School professor Richard Larrick found that higher temperatures have only a modest direct relationship to pitchers hitting batters, meaning the pitchers don't hit more batters on hot days. But heat does seem to, quote, magnify the response to provocation, end quote, meaning that a pitcher is more likely to retaliate for a hit batsman by an opposing pitcher by plunking someone himself. The relationship between heat and aggression, it turns out, has been studied in social psychology since the 19th. 70s. It's also a seemingly obvious thing embedded in language and the arts. Romeo and Juliet do the right thing, which Larrick noted in his first paper about baseball and beaning in 1991. 
Larrick told me that the idea to try to connect heat and aggression in baseball came from his fellow Michigan grad student at the time, Alan Reifman, better known as the hot hand theory guy. Uh, Pre-big baseball data, they collected data from random samples of box scores taken from microfilm, but they only looked at temperatures versus number of hit by pitches. The data wasn't good enough to consider retaliation. Enter the digital era. For the 2010 paper, Larrick and his colleagues downloaded play-by-play data from the retrosheet.org website for 111,000 major league games from 1952 through 2009. Game time temperatures were available on Retrosheet for more than 57,000 of the games. Games. Matching the data sets yielded information on more than four and a half million plate appearances. And sure enough, even when controlling for other factors, as the temperature went up, so did retaliatory hit by pitches. If a pitcher's teammate is plunked in the first inning, the probability that the pitcher will plunk someone on the other team later rises from about 22% at 55 degrees Fahrenheit to 27% at 95 degrees. We believe that the most plausible explanation for this pattern is that heat increases anger and arousal, and this psychological state changes how pitchers interpret and respond to provocation. What's interesting about pitcher retaliation is the length of time between the initial act and the retribution. When a batter charges at a pitcher after getting hit, it's called effective aggression, an instant road rage kind of response. But pitcher retaliation occurs a half inning or more later, which seems to make it more of an instrumental aggression thing considered and deliberate. But because the pitcher might still be pissed off and his manager and teammates might be pissed off, off. It's what psychologists call a mixed motive reaction. The heat appears to kick up the pitcher's motive to drill someone. If this is the case in baseball, football in the heat must be even more rollerball than usual, right? Right. A 2015 study by researchers at Texas Tech looked at 2,300 NFL games from 2001 to 2011. The temperature at those games ranged from negative one degree to 109 degrees, which has to be a sports record for temperature disparities. After performing a lot of regression analysis, etc., the researchers concluded that, yes, indeed, aggressive penalties, taunting, face masks, unnecessary roughness, unsportsmanlike conduct rise at a linear rate as the temperature goes up. The study found that the correlation is strongest for home teams because of the combination of heat and, as the authors put it, territoriality and pressure. But unlike the main takeaway in baseball, the study found that temperature does not influence the proneness toward reciprocal aggression in football, at least as measured by aggressive penalties. So what can we expect as climate change jacks up the temperature on the planet? More indoor stadia? I think not, given our predilection for NFL-style violence and baseball-style pseudo-brawls. Leagues will no doubt cash in on our hothouse future. The NFL in particular should take note. Rabid games, rabid crowds— aggression-stimulating heat could be what saves the league from oblivion. So the rule for the NFL, just let nature take its course. Josh, what's your Ann Beatty's box score? So after Cam Newton got hit in the head repeatedly on Thursday night with no consequence, it must have just been a really hot night in Denver, the NFL and the Players Association have both said they're going to look into whether the so-called concussion protocol was followed as it should have been. Concussion protocol, you say. Let's go back to the glory days of football when men were men, concussions ruled, and the XFL was a thing that existed. That thing, the XFL, founded by wrestling impresario Vince McMahon, began operations in 2001, ceased operations also in 2001, and has mostly been remembered for having a guy whose jersey said, he hate me. But the XFL also had at least two moments 
that belong in the What the Fuck Concussion Hall of Fame. The first came when Jay Barker of the Birmingham Thunderbolts got crushed in a game against the Chicago Enforcers. The XFL had microphones everywhere, and those mics captured this exchange after Barker got concussed. Jay Barker, post-concussion. Come here, I can't remember anything. I'm having a hard time thinking about stuff right now. That announcery intro that you just heard, Jay Barker, post-concussion. That's there because that clip was nominated for the XFL.com all-access moment of the year. The play also ended Jay Barker's career. Awesome. (laughs) No more access for him. (laughs) Okay, great moments in XFL concussions number two. Quarterback Jeff Brom of the Orlando. Rage. Got hit by Shante Carver of the Memphis. Maniacs with an X. (laughs) And Brom was knocked out of the game. It was the XFL.com hit of the year. Let's let's listen to a package that NBC, which ran the XFL games, desperate as it was for football-shaped content back then. Uh, This is what NBC ran before the next game. This clip features Brom. You'll hear him and also some of his teammates. Orlando Rager led by quarterback Jeff Brom. Seven TD passes, one of the XFL's first stars. Amazingly, he'll start tonight after a punishing shot that knocked him out. Oh, Jeff! Jeff Brom paid the price for that one. My first reaction was I, you know, I was shocked, stunned, dazed, confused, was was kind of, uh, you know, in another state of mind. I saw his head one way in his body, and I'm like, oh, goodness. You know, his nose was out the side of his ear hole, and I was like, man. His helmet was halfway off his head, and he was just laying there. I don't know if he was breathing or not. The concern is for quarterback Jeff Gomb. So then they had to take him to the hospital to get the x-rays, and once those came out okay, then I was able to uh, come back to the field with a, with a neck brace on. For a guy to take a hit like that and then come back on the sideline and cheer his team on, that really was touching. You know, I'm getting goosebumps not thinking about it. <laughs> According to a story in the Orlando Sentinel, Brom tried to go back in the game after leaving to go to the hospital and returning in a neck brace. His coach, Galen Hall, did not allow him to return. That is the XFL concussion protocol at work. But six days later, Brom, who is now the head coach at Western Kentucky, that was one of uh, your rent-a-games, Mike. They lost to Alabama. Uh He got the start against the Las Vegas Outlaws that uh, game six days later. Let's listen to his pregame interview before that game against the Las Vegas Outlaws. This also aired on NBC. Jeff Brown, how in the world are you starting this game tonight after taking that hit just six days ago? Well, let let me answer that question by asking you two questions. One, is this or is this not the XFL? Yes, it is. Two, do I or do I not currently have a pulse? Yes, I do. Let's play football. <laughs> can you believe this league didn't last for more than a couple months? I can't believe Trump wasn't affiliated with it. <laughs> that is an upset. Brom threw for 235 yards in that game. He led the rage to a 27-15 win. After the game, Fran Stuckberry, the XFL correspondent for Our Sports Central, wrote, Most quarterbacks who suffer from concussions would take at least a week off to make sure they were all right. But Brom showed his teammates he is the leader of the team. Despite suffering a concussion, he wanted to play and performed very well. If Brom is such a leader, though, then explain how he got a shoulder injury 
the very next week and never played another pro football game again. Makes you think, Stefan. Makes you think. Yeah. 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 Let me ask you two questions about that. The second one of which is, does he have a pulse? <laughs> Yeah, that would have been a more interesting uh, pregame interview. I'm very proud to say, by the way, that if you Google XFL and just XFL, my TikTok about the failure of the XFL that I wrote with Joe Flint of the Wall Street Journal was fourth. That's awesome. We'd love your feedback on the XFL. Good story. (laughs) And what else we talked about today. Everything else we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We've also got their links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty? Thank you, Annie Beatty. We love the whole Beatty family. And thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.